Right, we can turn to Lamentations, chapter 3. I'm sure that's everyone's favorite book in the Bible. Uh, it is right after Jeremiah, by whom we believe it was written, uh, since it doesn't uh, give any attribution in the, in the text of, Jeremiah, of uh, Lamentations. Uh, this is sort of the end of our uh, mini-series on God and the Hard Places. Um, although we continue with that same theme, as next week we begin a series on Habakkuk. So um, there we have it. I'm actually going to um, read the first part of this lamentation, so uh, it'll be a while before Matt moves that screen. So, all right. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone and has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent me and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth to grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks after him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we should be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length in height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the fall of 2006. I was sitting in the office of a friend who I uh, went to counseling, uh, did counseling with uh, way back when in seminary. And Amy and I had seen sort of the imminent demise of Cornerstone Community Church. It was not officially going to happen for another three quarters of a year, but we saw the handwriting on the wall. And we were distressed, as you might imagine. And so my friend asked me the question, what sustains you through this difficulty? And my response was Lamentations 3, verse 23. And so that's why we're looking at this today. Because it is meant to be a, a comfort to those who are in the midst of incredible struggle and affliction. And that sort of leads us to this question of what brought Jeremiah to the point where he was depending upon the constant mercies of God. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet. And we see his call at the beginning of Jeremiah that even from the womb, oddly enough, he was set apart and chosen to be a prophet to the people of Israel. And Jeremiah was one who was warning God's people that exile was going to come because of their disobedience, because of their covenant breaking. And so this leads up to the Babylonian exile for Judah and Jerusalem that took place in 586 B.C. And so I think we've uh, maybe uh, got a chart there that just kind of shows you how this fits within the, the context of the timeline of Judah's existence. Okay, So we have the call of Abraham about 1800. We've got the move to Egypt in 1500 B.C. David as king in 1000 B.C. And then 586, we have the fall of Jerusalem. That's the time frame uh, that Lamentations comes from, the fall of Jerusalem. Lamentations itself, in terms of a book, is a series of five laments that take place. And what's interesting about these laments is that all five of them are what they are called alphabetic acrostics, meaning that if we were to look at this in Hebrew, we would see that the, each verse begins in succession with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, working on down the line. What's, what's interesting about this chapter is that it's a triple alphabetic uh, acrostic, meaning that the first three verses start with Aleph, the next three start with Bet, the next three start with Gimel, and so on through the Hebrew alphabet. What's also interesting about this is that the laments sort of change in terms of who is speaking. In the, in the first lament, it's Jerusalem. It's written in the third person from the perspective of Jerusalem, the suffering of Jerusalem. And then it goes a little bit wider, and the second lament is about Israel. Israel is speaking, again, in the third person. And then here, in this one, the third, it shifts to me. 
the author is writing in the first person singular. And so we should recognize from this the reality that there is such a thing as, as national sin, okay, the apostasy of God's people who lived in Judah, which was a separate nation at that time. Remember, the northern kingdom had already been conquered by the Assyrians and taken away, and now we have the Babylonians coming to take away Judah. National sin creates national suffering. All of the people were suffering in one degree or another, and that national suffering means that there was also personal suffering. There's a sense in which this pattern that we see here in Lamentations is also is reflective of that pattern we see in the book of Judges. Easily summed up with A, B, C, D. Apostasy, followed by bashing of God's people. Not a great way of putting it, but we'll see. Then calling out to God, which is then followed by deliverance. And so this is part of the pattern that we see is expressed not just in the the history of Jeremiah, but also in the Lamentations that we read here in this particular book. When we think of the idea of national sin, national suffering, personal suffering, it is uh, very hard not to think, if you're an American, about 9-11. As a nation, we suffered. But how we suffered uh, differed in many ways, but we see that the the suffering spread in many ways. The weekend after 9-11, Amy was supposed to come down and visit. We were engaged at that point in time, and so we had a minor suffering, when I look at it, obviously, within context, of a delayed visit while so many people lost their lives. In fact, uh, Amy, from the parking lot of the school where she taught, uh, could look across and see the smoke rising from the Twin Towers. She had students who lost parents in the Twin Towers. There's the suffering of the first responders. Uh, Then there was the suffering of many Americans through the economic collapse that resulted uh, from uh, that event as well as the many families that were torn apart with result, uh, as a result of the uh, military excursions that we embarked on because of 9-11. So you have an act of sin, the terrorism, and then the spread of, of misery farther and farther amongst the people and amongst persons. A little different for everybody. We see, as we go back to Lamentations and the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, we see that Jeremiah, because he was the prophet warning Jerusalem and Judah about this, uh, Jeremiah was not uh, guilty of the apostasy himself, and yet he suffered as a result of their apostasy. It wasn't as though he was isolated from the the negative events that took place as God judged his people in Judah and Jerusalem, but he bore the brunt of it too. He was not exempted, but sometimes the spread of of, of suffering through sin takes in what we shall call the innocent parties. 
His message was rejected, and Jeremiah himself was persecuted, including being thrown in a cistern as a result of uh, the king not liking his message. It was not received well. It was rejected, and because of that, the destruction of Jerusalem came upon the people. One of the things that happened after or during the time that uh, our church closed was that one of the ladies came to me and said, why didn't we listen to you? Because I had been telling them about things that needed to change about our congregation. And that that refusal to listen really resulted in the chaos that they experienced. But what about lamentations? What about Jeremiah? He talks about it in a lot of ways, and some of which is this idea of how he or God has walled me about so that I cannot escape. Jeremiah feels trapped by God. He's experiencing an incredible amount of spiritual claustrophobia. He can't move. He can't do anything. He's trapped, and this is not in a good place. It's not as though he's trapped in the Barca lounger. Not only that, but he talks about how he is the prey of a ferocious God. He compares God to a ferocious bear who can tear him limb from limb. He compares God to the hungry lion who is chasing him down and will break his bones and consume him. But it's not just that he is the prey of a predator, uh, but that he sees God as the archer who can never miss, who is shooting his arrows into his kidneys. He's the target of God. Here's the prophet of God who is seeing God as against him in a profound fashion as a result of his sufferings, and we should recognize that we're often like that. When we're suffering, we think God has a bullseye on our backs, that God is a ferocious lion who not only isn't safe, but is ready to tear us apart. In the light of this, he has lost all of his strength, as it says there in um, verse 18. My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. He is done. He is spent. It's all over from a human perspective. And that's where we see sort of the turn. But we have to recognize this. David Paulson notes that God works on us in the midst of trouble because trouble gets our attention. In order for the rest of this, for him to come to the realization of the rest of this lament, he must first go through the struggles of this affliction. He must first suffer before he learns the lessons that he's about to learn. But he does start off with this prayer, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. There is a sense in which Jeremiah is stuck in his suffering, and just as he can't forget about it, he doesn't want God to forget about it. But he wants God to act on account of it. 
Wormwood and gall is something that is a, is a phrase that ends up, uh, because of the King James, in a lot of English literature like Charles Dickens, it becomes almost a catchphrase for things, but it's something that might be a little foreign to some of us. Wormwood refers to a bitter plant, if you were to chew on it, uh, that was often used as a tonic. And the English would use it, or the Brits would use it, to speak of an embittering experience. And so uh, that, that's, I think, reflected here in the Hebrew as well. This is a bitter experience that he wants God to remember precisely because he can't forget. As I was working through some of this, I... When I was thinking about 9-11, tears were coming to my eyes because I can't forget. And for some of you, it's the same thing. That's Jeremiah. He's wrapped up in the emotions of all of this. and It's it's overcoming him. And it's not just the bitterness of the, the wormwood, but also the gall, which is also something that's bitter, but can also refer to something that's poisonous. It feels as if he's dying, as if this thing is killing him. Everything seems lost for Jeremiah. Let's pause for a second before we get to the rest of his prayer. But I want you to to remember this. Uh, that in the suffering here, uh, Jeremiah shouldn't simply remind us of ourselves and, and our own suffering, though I think he should do that. But Jeremiah points us in significant ways to Jesus. Because Jesus was also rejected by his own people due to his message, just like Jeremiah. We see John 1. Verse 11, he came to his own or his own people, and even his own people did not receive him. So just as Jeremiah's message in person was not received by Judah, so Jesus' message in person was not received in large part by Judea and Jerusalem. Jesus like Jeremiah, was judged by the elite, the powerful of his time and place, and he was abused by them. Jesus was not tossed into a cistern, but Jesus was beaten and he was crucified after being verbally and physically abused. He was not cast down into a pit, but he was lifted up upon the cruel cross in judgment. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was not guilty for the sins for which he suffered. He suffered for the sin of his own people, not his own. Our sin brought his suffering. And so we see reminders of this in places like Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself... That's the main thing I want us to keep in mind here. Now, he goes to the application point of that so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted as if something strange is happening to you, so to speak. But, But Jesus, we're supposed to consider Jesus enduring such hostility from others 
that is to be upon our minds. And so, precisely because Jesus endured this hostility, he, bear, he bore, rather, the judicial penalty that our suffering brought about. So that we don't bear the judicial penalty of our sin. That's what I meant to say, our sin brought about. We don't bear the judicial penalty. We don't bear the condemnation if we believe in Jesus Christ. Then if that is the case, our suffering, which will come, is to be seen as chastisement to redirect us as opposed to condemnation, which will destroy us. Do you get the difference between those two things? There's a difference between the son being cast out of the house and the son being sent to his room. One is condemnation. The other is chastisement. One ends the relationship. The other preserves the relationship while seeking to redirect the child. Those are different. But we see in light of all of this, the first thing I want us to hear is that unrepentant sin spreads suffering. And that's really almost the first half of this lament about the reality of sin spreading suffering so that Jeremiah is caught up. Which leads me to another question. How is hope restored to those who are suffering from either sin's curse or chastisement? It is intended to be the same answer, in a sense, to both of those. Whether you are a person who does not yet trust in Jesus Christ and are under the condemnation of God, or whether you are a Christian who is suffering, experiencing the chastisement of God, how is your hope intended to be restored? Jeremiah is about to restore or have his hope restored. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And there's a sense in which hope comes as we use our minds, as we remember certain things. It does not come automatically. It does not come mysteriously like a vapor in the night, but it comes in response to certain things that we think about. Hope, in other words, is an expectation that is rooted in the truth and the promises of faith that are given to us by God. That these things reveal the very character of God, which is the ultimate source of our hope. Who God is. So he says a couple of things that are pertinent here. And the first that he says is, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That should shock us in a sense. Remember, it was not all roses, unicorns, rainbows, and um, four-course meals, shall we say? for Jeremiah at this point. And yet he realizes that the steadfast love of God never ceases. His, his love is never finished up. It's, it's never used up. It's, it's never exhausted. 
This word steadfast love can be translated kindness. It can be translated as goodness because it has both of those aspects to it. Okay? But the, the, the bottom line foundation of this concept is that God is a covenant keeping God. That He is one who keeps His promises to provide kindness, love, and goodness to His people, that He has sworn to do this, and that He will continue to do it. And so His kindness and His goodness are sort of like a, a, a spring-fed str- uh, stream. Uh, it's not ruined by drought because it's dependent upon snow and rain in the mountains, but rather there's this underwater spring that keeps pushing water up so that spring Sorry, that stream keeps flowing and providing. And that's the kind of steadfast love that God has for His people. Not only does His steadfast love never cease, but His mercies never come to an end. You never reach the end of His rope. You might reach the end of your rope and feel you can't go on, but His mercy doesn't stop. It continues. Precisely because God being rich in mercy, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you can't exhaust His mercy, it's so rich. But here's the reality. Addicts and the immature, who are immature Christians, often feel that they exhaust God's love and mercy because they've done it, whatever it is, yet again. And if you have ever been in the grips of addiction like I have, then you experience that. But even immature Christians, as I said, can experience that. Because you're dealing with habitual sin, perhaps, and you, I, I sinned again. Is there still mercy for me? And the good news is, yes, there is. Amy and I have started to watch the Goldbergs. Barry Goldberg was in the clutches of an addiction to a video game. It was so bad that he stole his brother Adam's Millennium Falcon and brought it to the pawn shop so he could get more quarters to go to the arcade and play the game. When Adam discovered this, there was no mercy in his heart for Barry. But Pops still had mercy for Barry. God is like Pops. God is not like Adam (laughs) in this. When it seems like we cannot be free, God is still there saying, yes, you can be free. Because I am the one who will set you free. And so God does not abandon his projects, but he begins things and he brings them to a completion, particularly in including our salvation to completion, as we looked at in Philippians chapter 1. One of the interesting things as I consider this idea of not bringing things to completion, the unfinished jobs, is our time in the Adirondacks. If you travel in the Adirondacks, you will see a lot of homes with Tyvek 
exposed. And I think we've got a picture of that. That's what it, it sort of looks like. That's a building that's in construction. But what will happen is, is they'll put all of the siding on except one small portion of the siding and leave it exposed. And it, as I asked my brother-in-law, why in the world would they do that? It's because if they put the last bit of siding up, the project is completed and the inspector has to show up and you have to pay him money. <laughs> And so they specifically choose not to complete the project so they don't have to deal with the inspector and any further outlay of cash. God is not that way. (laughs) He's going to bring it to completion. It may be longer than you want it to be. It may be more painful than you want it to be. But God will bring it to completion because that is the kind of God He is. But remember, it comes from His steadfast love. It comes from His mercies, which are not exhausted, but He will work to bring about that good in everything, as it, Paul says in Romans eight twenty-eight. Jeremiah continues, they, referring to the steadfast love and to the mercy, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's a new supply every day. Just as the sun comes up, just as sure as that, there is new mercy, there is new steadfast love to begin and continue the day. It's sort of like living off of a trust fund. It's always there. And it's, it's got enough to meet your needs. God gives us sufficient grace for each day. This is, persist- this is exactly why Jeremiah, echoing what we see in uh, the psalm, says, the Lord is my portion. The, the, the portion refers to a share in something or an inheritance. He's saying the Lord is my inheritance, which is interesting because when you look in the Old Testament, particularly in Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 10, you see that the Levites and the priests had no inheritance in Israel. They had no land of their own, and so their inheritance was the Lord. And so Jeremiah is saying, in essence, I am like a priest or a Levite. All I have is God himself. And that's enough. That's the key point. I have God, and because I have him, I have everything I need. If I don't have him, I may have lots of other stuff, but I don't have what I need. Because I need steadfast love, I need mercy, I need faithfulness. And apart from God, I have none of those. But if I have God, I've got those, despite the lack of everything else that seems so important to me. Christ and Him crucified is the spring from which flow all of the love, all of the mercy, all of the faithfulness that we need. We see Paul pointing us to this in Corinthians when he says Christ is God's yes and amen to all of his promises. Now again, this does not mean that life is going to be easy, but that we experience these things specifically within the midst of our afflictions. The only way we know the depth and the power of God's love, his mercy, and his faithfulness is when it looks like everything is against us. 
when we have no other earthly hope. And that's part of why John Piper talks about suffering as weaning us from the world. And he's not the only one who speaks that way. We have to be weaned from our dependence upon the world, from seeking our refuge and other things besides God. We need to be driven into the stronghold of Jesus because we are so prone to trust in everything but Jesus. And so, as John Newton might say, look to Christ as the refuge and shelter in the midst of your suffering. If you're not a Christian, then you are to look to Jesus and say, save me, deliver me from the suffering that my sin produces, from the condemnation of God. But if you're a Christian, you say, save me, O Father, Jesus, save me from this chastisement which I'm afraid can undo me because it's greater than I can endure. Either way, look into Christ as the refuge and shelter in the midst of your suffering because He will hold you fast. And so we are to remember Christ's inexhaustible love, mercy, and faithfulness when we suffer. In light of that, Third question is, how does this shape our response to suffering? When we believe that Christ is God's provision in us, that should change how we suffer. Now, here's the thing. If Jeremiah had to learn this, how much more you and I need to learn this? Jeremiah is the prophet of God. He's been in the heavenly council. He's had visions. And he had to learn this experientially, not simply theoretically. How much more we need to learn this experientially, not simply theoretically. This shift is not a bat turn. And that phrase is probably lost on some of you. But if you remember the old Batman TV series, okay, my friends and I would talk about this at lunch in high school because we still watched Batman. There was the Bat Turn, and they usually used a bad model of the Batmobile. <laughs> and it was just on a swivel so that it didn't turn the corner, it did a 180 instantaneously. And only the Batmobile can do that, mind you. Okay, your life does not change like the Batmobile. It does not do an instantaneous 180. Your life will change more like a battleship. Kind of slow, wide turn that takes a while. And that's okay. God's not in a rush. You're in a rush, but he's not. So, This wide turn includes the realization that God is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. He holds out this incentive that the Lord is good, but there's a, there are conditions, those who wait for him, those who seek him. The waiting and the seeking are parallel. They're meant to complement one each other, one another, meaning that the waiting is not passive, but rather is an active sort of thing. We're not just sitting in a chair waiting, but we are seeking the Lord while we wait, even if we're not moving. 
to seek him can also have this idea of inquiring or consulting him. And so we see that receiving good here is conditioned upon this waiting and seeking of the Lord. That's part of why we read from Jeremiah this morning. They sort of consulted. You see, what happened there is after the the exile had taken place, the, the Babylonian king had established a governor, and what some of the people of Judea did, one of the nobles did, is decided to kill the governor. And so they killed the governor, and then they asked Jeremiah, seek the Lord for us. Should we stay here or should we go to Egypt? And Jeremiah comes back with the word of the Lord, and it was, stay here. Don't go to Egypt. I know what you're afraid of. You're afraid of the king of Babylon. You're afraid of the sword consuming you, and you're afraid of the famine that you're experiencing. But here's the good news. You won't have to be afraid of those things if you stay here. But guess what? If you go there, they're going to follow you and you will be destroyed. But they didn't receive the counsel of the Lord through Jeremiah, and they took Jeremiah with them when they fled to Egypt, where they were then consumed by the sword and the famine and the pestilence. They did not receive the good of the Lord because they did not wait for the Lord, and they did not seek the Lord. But they threw off his counsel and ran the other way. Jeremiah says, again, this this idea of good keeps showing up in this part of the passage. It is good if one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, which is parallel with the very next verse. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And so we're getting close to the end of this lament because it's the tease, the tove that is out in all of this. Tove. Good. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth to receive instruction, or it could refer to receiving chastisement and learning from it, being instructed by it. And so both interpretations have get back to that root idea of instruction, whether it's verbal or whether it's through circumstances. Are you willing to listen to what God has to say? Are you willing to take His yoke upon you, which is light and easy, as Jesus said in Matthew 11? And it gets back to this point that God must break the people that He wants to use greatly so that they will obey His instruction. Hoosiers was on. I couldn't turn it off. It's that movie about an Indiana high school basketball team with Gene Hackman, and I wanted my kids to see it a little bit because there are important lessons there. And what the coach had to do was break his team so they could be a team. There was one player who could shoot really well, but he wanted to do what he wanted to do as opposed to what the coach told him to do. And so here it is early in the season, and the guy, instead of making the prerequisite four passes that his coach wanted, instead of following the instruction of his coach, what he does is he just says, I'm wide open. And even though it went in, the coach sat him down. And even when his replacement got removed from the game because of too many fouls, he sat on the bench 
they played with four players because the, the, the whole team, not just a player, had to learn what it means to play as a team. God is willing to be like that coach. He's willing to break us so that he can use us. Not to destroy us, but that we become more useful in his hands. We see this in the lives of so many people. For instance, we see it in the life of Joseph, who's tossed in a well like Jeremiah, sold into slavery, sent off to Egypt, where he becomes, where he is still a slave, uh, but he's falsely accused, he's thrown into prison, and there he sits. And later on, when he is the, uh, the visitor of Egypt, he's able to say to his brothers who are afraid that he's going to get vengeance upon them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But Joseph wouldn't be the man who was able to do that if he hadn't first been broken of his pride. We see the same thing with the life of Moses. He knows he's called to deliver God's people and he tries to do it himself. So what ends up happening? Moses has to flee for his life and spend 40 years tending sheep in the wilderness until he's an old man and can't rely upon himself anymore. He must rely upon the Lord. Moses had to be broken. David, though he was a great warrior, was not yet ready to lead the people of Israel and was driven into the wilderness and chased by Saul because he must learn what it means to be a good man so he can be a good king, not just a great warrior. David had to be broken that he might be a great king. And so it is with us. Whatever it is that you're going to be great at, however God is going to use you, He first has to shape you and change you. And so the sooner you accept the yoke, the easier it's going to be. Godly waiting is not quiet, but it is not filled with the rage of complaint. How could you do this to me, God? That kind of thing. Though usually said much loudly, more loudly. But the, 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 the godly waiting shifts from complaint over to confession, which is where the lament is going to continue. In other words, this yoke that Jesus invites us to take is light. It's no heavier than it has to be. This yoke will lead us to good places and good living. And salvation in part comes by embracing the very thing we avoid, the yoke, because receiving it is the repentance from our self-will, from our self-determination, from our selfishness. Peter reflects this in the fourth chapter of his first letter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful Creator while doing good. That is a description of what it means to take the yoke while one is young or old. Entrusting yourself to God and continuing to walk in what He's already shown you. And so 
The third point here is that faith submits to Christ by waiting and seeking Him in suffering instead of running away. So like Jeremiah, I saw the destruction that was to come, although it was a much um, minor destruction in many, many ways. Our little church would close in part because, but not in toll, but because people didn't listen to the warnings. They lost the church that they loved and had invested so much into, and they discovered that they could never get it back that there was something special about that community that they would never find anywhere else. Amy and I entered nearly three years of confusion, of rejection, of underemployment, and all that comes with it. See, the suffering of sin spreads. But that is still God at work to turn our hearts toward Him, whether it's at first in conversion or more fully in sanctification. In suffering, we learn that Christ is the supply of God's inexhaustible love, mercy, and faithfulness. Having what we need from Him, we can begin to submit to God in the midst of our suffering. We can seek Him instead of simply seeking relief. So let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as there are none of us who don't continually have to contend with many temptations due to our infirmity, that we are ready to give way to them unless you help us. Grant that we would be sustained by your invisible power and also that when you humble us, we may loathe ourselves on account of our sin and thus preservingly contend until having gained the victory, you shall give glory to your, for your perpetual aid. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.